Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions, wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoger, the Tolberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together we can help make our world at least a little bit better. The future of global democracy is startlingly uncertain. The Economist recently concluded that nearly 70% of countries exhibited signs of democratic decline last year, while Freedom House's newest report finds a decline in global freedom for the 15th consecutive year. Moreover, despite lots of individual exceptions, there is a growing body of evidence that globally, youth satisfaction with democracy is declining, not only in absolute terms, but relative to how older generations felt at the same stages in their lives. Today's conversation is part of Telberg's exploration of the future of democracy. Is Churchill still right that democracy is the worst form of government except for everything else? My guests today are Cristobal Marín Rojas, who comes from Bogota, Colombia, and Julian Richard, who is French, American, and Austrian, and I suspect some other things as well, but we'll leave, we'll leave it there. Both are students at the Paris School for International Affairs at Sciences Po. Welcome to this conversation. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Hello. Thank you. So, Cristobal, what do you think about Churchill? Right, wrong, or indifferent? Is democracy still the best form, or do we need to rethink things? I think in general, when we talk about democracy, we're referring to a very broad term. We can talk about many different uh, forms of democracy. So I do believe democracy may be the only or, or the best form of government, but it is also important to talk more in substance about what kind of democracy we are talking about and what do we mean when we talk about uh, democracy. We're going to do that over the course of the next few minutes, but I yesterday spent half of my day thinking and worrying about democracy in Colombia, uh, where there have been people in the streets for the last week, where ministers are resigning, where cars are being burned. Clearly, there's a lot of unhappiness in many countries. You're from Colombia. Is democracy working well in Colombia today? Uh, yeah, this conversation couldn't have come in a, in a better uh, timing because, as you said, Colombia is in the middle of a political crisis uh, right now. Um, so, our, yeah, around these days, starting the 28th of April, thousands of people have uh, come out to the streets starting uh, to protest uh, against a specific uh, tax reform uh, proposed uh, by the government that is supposed to hurt mainly uh, the middle class to uh, try to deal with the debt that the government has acquired amid the, the pandemic. But it has expanding to, expanded to a general feeling of alienation, uh, disregard and underrepresentation. It has also left already 18 confirmed murders uh, of protesters uh, by the hands of, of the police. This is 18 people uh, in six days. So yeah, I think it's a great moment to talk about uh, social contracts and uh, politicians' response for from uh, citizens' demands. Uh, so I, I would not say democracy does not work in Colombia, but uh, it is true that democracy is very fragile uh, right now. Julian, let's pick up the, that thread of the pandemic and its impact on democracy and democracy's ability to deliver on the social contract. How are you thinking about that from your perspective uh, as a European? 
I think when we're talking about democracy and the backslide of democracy or the relative decline of democracy, I think that there are reasons for concern, um, but we don't need to dramatize the situation. You're right to say is that there is a lot of the time we hear this question of the social contract and what is happening to this social contract. I understand a social contract in a democracy revolving around the welfare state. And when we're talking about the welfare state, especially in Europe, um, where I grew up and where I can kind of give you my insight, is that since the 70s, um, and I'm using also inspired by Ivan Krastev's um, great book, After Europe, where he talks about this welfare state being in decline since the 70s. There are three points. And if you go from the first one, it's the way that states have been increasing their debt. And when they're increasing their debt, the redistribution, which is part of the welfare system um, and a key cornerstone of democracy, is not as redistributive anymore. And at the same time, what happened since the 70s is that with globalization, you've had market competition going across the world. And so countries are competing against each other. And so while they're competing against each other, governments need to deregulate. And so as you deregulate, you're making the rich richer and the poor poorer. And that for democracy is a worrying trend. And then the third one, and here I speak in particular with the countries in Europe and most notably in Central and Eastern Europe, is the question of identity. And a lot of the times in Europe, we don't understand, especially in Western Europe, how strong this fabric of cultural identity is engraved in Central Eastern European countries. And because Europe has kind of paved this way for a neoliberal agenda from the 70s onwards, they see the European Union as not only taking away their money, taking away their chances to prosper, but also taking away their important um, cultural identity. Now, if we combine all of these three together, we have less redistribution. Second, we have more income inequality because of deregulation. And the third is you have a loss of identity. What happens is that this becomes the breeding ground. It becomes fertile ground for populist parties to thrive. Populism, I guess it's hard to define, but when you say that you have two antagonistic groups where you have the, the pure people and the corrupt elite. And if you take those three together, this is how populism thrives. Mr. Strobel, how do you think democratic governments have managed this crisis, good, bad, or ugly? I think one of the main failures of governments across the world has been that of communication. I think governments did not expect this to happen, and they were certainly not prepared for a global pandemic uh, of, of this strength to, to hit the world in, in the way that it has. I think leaders who are supposed to send a message of calm and of, uh, of more or less knowing what that they know what they're doing, they have failed uh, doing so. So I think in terms of communication, in terms of, of the symbol of the state as a stable ground in which citizens can, can rely on, uh, has, has been uh, quite, quite weak in that regard. Let's take that step further, Julian. The interests of younger people, how have the interests of younger people been treated in this crisis? I study political science and, and international security, but um, from the outset, it should be said that I do not want to be a politician in these times. I think it's, it's extremely difficult and there is no right or wrong. And if I come back to the question of um, how, the, how democracies or how governments reacted um, right at the beginning of the pandemic, I think the reaction was strong on the European side. 
I think that the European governments, in most cases, they acted by taking the right um, precautions, by closing down the economies, but then again, um, issuing massive amounts of liquidity, um, tax relief programs. So I think on that aspect, at the beginning, when there was so much uncertainty, they took the right measures. Now, of course, when you're talking about how we young generations, how are we doing and and maybe it's different for the younger generation than for the older generation. In the end, 365 days are 365 days for everybody, regardless of how old you are. So it is a long time and we've all gone through difficult periods. Um, I think for the young generation, what is difficult is that we're not, we're living through a lot of pressure when it comes to, to work ethics, when it comes to how much um, is expected from you. And there, from the government's side, not a lot has been talked about what is this doing to our psyche? How much, how much is this affecting us? Um, how, how is this going to affect us in the long term? What are the prospects for us in terms of job opportunities? So I think, to sum it up, there is, as I said, there is no right or wrong answer. But if there could be a little more space, and I'm, and I'm a big fan of spaces, because spaces give you opinions and opinions are diverse and this is how you can start discussing. And I think that there's not enough space for dialogue in the field of the psyche, young or old. I think that there a lot of work needs to be done. And I think the repercussions will be felt in the long term for sure. You started that with something that I find absolutely fascinating. You said you wouldn't want to be a politician. Um, and it's going to be a question of both, both of you guys. It seems to me that if we're dissatisfied with the way things are going, we may need different kinds of leaders. Do you see people, your peers, willing to go into politics, interested in going into politics, interested in trying to change how decisions are made uh, and indeed what kind of decisions are being made? Or more and more people saying, no, that's the last thing I want to do. Um, if, if I'll just take this, this question, uh, when I say that I don't want to be a politician or I don't want to go into politics, it's really just because I don't want to be in politics at this period of time. Um, that said, I don't speak for a lot of my friends or even for myself. The future, the future is, is open to lots of opportunities. But I do still agree with you that there is in the future, we young people, we're often told that we're idealists. And I pride myself to consider myself an idealist in the sense that I have hope for the future in terms of the change in politics. And I think that with mass communication and social media, as much as there are drawbacks in there, we can see that there's more transparency coming from politics, which means that when there's more transparency or there's more investigative journalism coming out, we can see what is happening in the back, in the corridors of power. And there, with that, comes accountability. And I think that if we continue to hold our politicians accountable, I think that naturally the future generation will have to be vested with the right tools to change the way they act. And by changing the way they act, I mean how politicians perceive their position of power. Chris, what do you think? Yes, uh, before Julian was talking about the big reforms that happened uh, during the 1970s uh, related to uh, uh, the welfare state, the retrenchment of the, of the welfare state, and how in general th there was this change in, in mindset in the way politics should be done. And we could talk maybe about the depolitization of politics or a depolitization of democracy. Colin Hay uh, has, a, has a great book 
called Why We Hate Politics, which precisely touches upon the idea that as politics have become more depoliticized, more professional, more uh, technocratic, people, ordinary citizens, start to feel disconnected towards uh, political processes, and they end up hating politics. And I think for the future political, uh, global political elite, which uh, Julia and I are a part of, are, are conscious of this. Uh, and, and I think the idea today to, to become a politician is, is complicated because I think politics and um, spending your life doing, doing politics and being involved uh, in politics has, has lost a lot of, of status in general. Which is a problem because if, and, and I'm not trying to focus on you individually, but if people who are as interested as you and your colleagues at Sciences Po are in politics and policy and, and good outcomes, driving the next generation of, of leadership, uh, the question becomes, who will? You've touched on populism and put aside the definition of it. it it's a bit like pornography. You know it when you see it. Um, and it has surprised a lot of people that certainly in, in many South American countries and in some of the European countries as well, an amazing percentage, a surprising percentage of youth are enthusiastic about what are called strong leaders with air quotes on it. Christelle, do you want to go? Or? Uh, sure. Um, I think among our peers, the thing is that for me, I think Julian would agree with this. Uh, we as political science uh, students uh, and an international politics students, we, we, we live in, in this liberal bubble uh, and we really don't understand the degree to which uh, people our age might be drawn to strong leaders that are, are offering a different, uh, an alternative to, 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 to democracy and, and, and policy making. Although it is also important to try and understand why are people our age drawn to these to this kinds of uh, leaders. Uh, and as I was saying uh, before, I think right now these leaders are the only representative representatives of 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 repoliticizing repoliticizing the democratic the democratic process. As I see it, global governance uh, in general uh, has 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 tried to depoliticize itself, and and these leaders offer discourse rhetoric as in the twentieth century the politicians uh, used to do. So I think that's that, that's also an important thing. Uh, to, to take into account. These people are trying to uh, kind of uh, revive revive politics and revive uh, discourse and, um, and and the importance of, of performance uh, in politics, which is something that ma mainstream politics uh, or liberal politics have, has, 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 try, has tried to uh, leave behind. That's absolutely fascinating because what you're really saying is that places like Brussels and Washington tend to be technocracies tend to be run by technocrats, uh, whereas populists and, and perhaps people want flesh and blood democracy, want, want, want people that are communicating at a more human level and a less technocratic level. Uh, does that make sense to you, Julian? Yeah, I, it, it does. It does make sense. But it, it, when, you, when, you, when you're asking the question of, do I know people who are maybe interested or tantalized into going into politics and who prefer these simple solutions 
two more complex answers. My answer would be this is what politics is about. And I would revert you to like read George Orwell, who spoke meticulously or wrote meticulously about about semantics and politics being semantics overload. So I think that this is what politics is about. It's about trying to gain um, attention from the wider public by precisely connecting yourselves with them. And you can only connect yourselves with them if you don't use technocratic or technical political jargon. Like, it's not possible. So I think that there is a certain degree of normality when we're talking about politics being simple solutions to more complex problems. But what is dangerous with populism, in my, in my opinion, as you said, it's very difficult to define it. But if you would assume that, for example, in the um, Central and Eastern European countries, the Visegrad Four are populist, what the problem with, that, with, with populism there is, is that they're going vehemently against institutional political process. And they're going against that not only when they speak about it, but also when they operate inside of politics. So let me give you an example. When the 2015 migration crisis um, unfolded and the European Union was saying that there are a lot, of, a lot of migrants coming into Greece and Italy and Italy and Greece needed to alleviate the pressure because it was getting too much administratively as well as politically. And by the way, there Italy was also governed by a populist party and they wanted a European solution. The populists in Central and Eastern Europe said, no, we're not going to go for a relocation scheme. We're not going to go for a quota system. And what happened then? They signed the EU-Turkey statement, which might have decreased the number of migration, but it didn't solve their role in foreign policy terms because the Turkey used them as hostage. So this is where I think um, populism is dangerous. You can speak about being for the people as much as you want, and I think you can find this on both sides um, of the aisle. But if you do actually commit yourself to deinstitutionalizing the, the political process in particular when you're talking in the European um, context, then this is when, when it becomes dangerous. And like, my last point is, when we're talking about Brussels being technocratic, I agree that there is a PR difficulty in trying to portray the European Parliament, the Commission, as being less technical and more connected to the people. But in the end, without this technical or without this technocratic side to it, the European Union would not be the EU it is at the moment. A world under stress needs leaders in every discipline and in every country. Leaders whose work is innovative, courageous, rooted in universal values and global in approach or implication. If you know someone like that, in your company, in your university, in your community, anywhere, please nominate that person for the Talberg SNF Aliasin Global Leadership Prize. Go to talbergprize.org. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G prize.org. One of the things that bothers me is that there seems to be unfairly low expectations of how young people perform in democracies. An American case in point is that there's widespread celebration that 50%, a little more than 50% of people, voters, between 18 and 24, actually voted in the last presidential election. Uh, and that this was 10 points better than ever before. The stunning thing, of course, is that two-thirds of eligible voters voted. So the turnout was, again, way lower than the rest of the population. But we look at the half-full glass rather than the half-empty glass. And, and you saw it in, in Brexit, when young people didn't vote in Brexit, which is a major reason why Brexit, in fact, passed. 
And that story is repeated over and over and over again in countries, um, even where voting is mandatory. So the question becomes very simple. Why don't kids vote? Chris? Yeah, I, I think this comes back to what we've been uh, discussing. I, I think people and young people uh, in particular feel that politics do not work for them or do not work in, in, in their, their best interest. Uh, if we go again to technocratic governance, I don't think this is only a communication problem. I think it, this is also about the way politics are done and the specific public policies that are uh, set in place that, uh, of course, have created massive inequalities in, in, in the 21st century. It has also left people to feel alienated from their own communities. And uh, I think our generation has been raised in a way in which individualism uh, reigns over the idea of, of community. And I think in, in that sense, young people uh, today are feel less interested about, about politics and about changing communities, the world, the realities. Uh, first, because, yeah, again, they feel alienated from, from their communities. But second, because I think young people see politics as this uh, spider web of, of bureaucracy. And, um, and I think it's really hard to imagine changing things when politics get so complex. So I think going again to, 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 to populist leaders, populist leaders offer a simpler way of understanding uh, politics and understanding how solutions can be achieved. I agree with Cristobal or acquiesce with him to a certain degree in the sense of that um, politics sometimes gets convoluted in this complex web and we get so distant from what is actually going on on the ground, um, which makes technocrats seem so distant to actually what politics is supposed to do and it's supposed to be representing the people. Maybe it's because we're talking about different regions and for me in the European Union's context, I think um, I want to highlight again the importance of technocracy. And if I'm looking right now, if we're talking about the coronavirus and the relief program, for example, and how the European Union just issued 750 billion euros um, that is going to be spread out to different member states in terms of grants and loans, 750 billion euros. That is not, that is not little money. For the European Union to coordinate with the 27 different member states on how they're going to spend the money, whether it's going to be given towards green um, development, towards digitalization, towards the rule of law, you will need to have good governance. And in order to have good governance, you will need razor sharp monitoring and coordination. And this requires transparency. It requires foresight. It requires inclusion. And all of that cannot be done without a grand bureaucratic system. As much as we think that politics should be closer and closer to the people, so that it eventually trickles down to the people, bureaucracy must be part of the equation. So maybe it's because I'm talking about the European Union and it's a lot more complicated because it's 27 different member states kind of fighting each other off and, and trying to get their own bits of the cake. But I think that we just maybe need to change the word of technocracy and change the way we perceive it, because in the end, we actually need it. And here I'm talking about the European Union. Yes, I, I, I would agree with you, but uh, I, think, I think we're talking about different things. When, when we talk about uh, 
technocracy. Of course, every, every state and every governance system needs a large and efficient uh, bureaucracy to work. I think when I talk about technocracy is uh, and technocratic governance, this idea and this communication uh, strategy that uh, there is only one way of getting things done. Uh, and that's what I mean about when, when I talk about technocracy. Uh, and we see often, for example, uh, in the context of, of, of Europe, even uh, in, in, in the period of reform, of austerity reforms uh, after the economic crisis, uh, people were told that the only way out of the crisis, the only technocratic technical way of getting out of, of the crisis was through austerity. So I think people do not feel that politics is an open space, but rather uh, it is a very single space in which one possible decision can be made. And I think that hurts democracy a lot. And, the, and, I, and I think uh, when populist leaders arrive offering a different alternative uh, from, from this very authoritarian form of governance, which is all, technocracy is also a very authoritarian way of governance, will people feel inspired and, and people feel that this is the only way things can be changed when, especially when, when, when technocracy is working against them in, in, in many senses. Thank you both for that. Uh, this is going to be a continuing conversation because I think the, the next chapter of this talk has to be, what can we do better? How should we change the forms of democracy? What should we do differently? How do we evolve democracy to leverage the technologies of the 21st century in ways that are more effective and produce better outcomes? So let me thank both of you for this conversation. There are no right answers. I suspect there are some wrong answers, but there are no right answers. So thank you very much, Julian. Thank you very much, Chris. Let's keep the conversation going. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Now it's your turn. Tell us what you think. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergprize.org. Thanks again, and most importantly, don't forget to nominate a leader whose work deserves to be recognised and imitated. This podcast brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation.